Welcome to What Christians Should Know, hosted by Dr. Elijah Sadoffel. This podcast equips you with clarity and meaningful answers about God, the Bible, and your Christian life. Now, here's Dr. Sadoffel. Today, we'll be taking a look at Proverbs chapter 1, verses 8 to 19. This lesson will equip you with three things. Number one, an effective way to teach lasting lessons that people will cherish and follow. Number two, how to live a life of prosperity and honor. And number three, how to spot the false promises behind life's enticements. Now, before we move forward, let us briefly rehearse where we've been because that will help us to understand today's lesson. Last time, we ended in Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7, which says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. What this verse established is that wisdom is relational. That is, a person begins walking on the path of wisdom by obedient reverence of the Lord. A sound relationship with God leads not only to life, but a full and abundant life marked by the Lord's blessings. But if you are not in a sound relationship with God, then what happens? Then you are in an unsound relationship with sin, which manifests as foolishness. This gives us insight into the big idea of the lesson Solomon now teaches his son in verses 8 to 19. The big idea is how not to fall for the enticement of foolish sinners. Specifically, Solomon instructs his son that if he gains by violence or unjust means, the one who invariably loses is him. In the end, greed never makes good on its false promises. So that's the big picture view of Proverbs chapter 1 verses 8 to 19. Now let's open our Bibles and turn to our theme verses. I invite you to follow along with me. So Proverbs chapter 1 verses 8 to 19 says, Hear, my son, your father's instruction, and do not forsake your mother's teaching. Indeed, they are a graceful wreath to your head and ornaments around your neck. My son, if sinners entice you, do not consent. If they say, Come with us, let us lie in wait for blood, let us ambush the innocent without cause, let us swallow them alive like Sheol, even whole as those who go down to the pit. We will find all kinds of precious wealth, we will fill our houses with spoil. Throw in your lot with us, we shall all have one purse. My son, do not walk in the way with them, keep your feet from their path, for their feet run to evil and they hasten to shed blood. Indeed, it is useless to spread the baited net in the sight of any bird, but they lie in wait for their own blood, they ambush their own lives. So are the ways of everyone who gains by violence. It takes away the life of its possessors. Now before we dive into an exposition of what individual verses say, let us consider the text that we just read overall. Here, Solomon gives a lesson to his son, or a father gives instruction to his child. The crucial thing not to miss first is not what the teacher is saying, but how the first lesson in Proverbs is taught. A close inspection of these verses reveals that wisdom not only teaches, it also teaches you how to do it. Here then is my first point. Point number one, wisdom teaches you how to teach. As I mentioned in episode 7.1, a biblical proverb is a wisdom lesson intended to teach useful skills on how to navigate life as revealed by God. 
So how does the wise teacher of Proverbs teach this wisdom lesson? He does four specific things, and knowing these four will help any teacher to be a better teacher. It will also make their lessons more meaningful and effective. First, Solomon motivates his son to hear the message. He does not just start teaching the lesson. Instead, he gives his son reasons as to why he should pay attention. He does this by telling him the benefits of hearing. We see this in verses 8 to 9. Solomon issues the command to hear and follows that up by telling his son that if he takes this lesson seriously, he will gain a figurative wreath on his head and ornaments around his neck. These adornments are like jewelry, which are a sign of wellness, prosperity, and honor. Jewelry is portable, and a person can take it with them wherever they go in life. Thus, what Solomon is essentially saying is, Son, if you listen to your mother and I and do not take our instruction for granted, you will gain in two ways. One, by avoiding what will hurt you, and two, by gaining something that you can take with you in every area of life. So the first thing Solomon does is motivate his son to hear the message by explaining the benefits of the instruction. Second, Solomon gives specific, actionable advice. We see this in verse 10. He clearly tells his son, if sinners entice you, do not consent. This is simple, direct, and straight to the point. There is nothing abstract or flaky about this counsel. He does not say something vague like, be a good boy, or mind who you hang around. Vague counsel only leaves people confused and results in decision paralysis. Accordingly, Solomon gives a direct imperative that leaves no gray area. If people from the wrong crowd entice you with evil, do not even be willing in your mind lest your feet follow. Do not consent. It's also important not to miss that this actionable advice is also very easily memorized. So even if his son forgets everything else his father says next, he'll be safe in remembering this command. So second, Solomon gives specific, actionable advice. Third, Solomon prepares his son. He prepares him for real life with real-life examples. We see this in verses 11 to 15. There, he gives specific examples of the exact things sinners will say in order to lure his son away. Hence, as the saying goes, to be forewarned is to be forearmed. Many times in life, people get into trouble simply because they encounter novelty. Because something is new, they may not have any experience, knowledge, or a mentor that can guide them to make a good decision. But this is the power of preparedness. It gives you an awareness of something before something happens. And because you know what to expect, you know what to do. Subsequently, having clear examples taught before those examples actually materialize into reality can debunk a sinner's schemes before an enticer opens their mouth. Just imagine if the hour before Eve was tempted in Eden, a wise counselor told her something like this. Hey Eve, if the serpent entices you, do not consent. God is so good and gracious, he gave you this entire garden. I would not want you to lose that, nor do I think you want to lose this garden. So I want to tell you something and I want you to hear. There's a serpent who may try to entice you to disobey God. 
He'll lie to you, tell you that you can be like God by eating fruit, and say that you won't die. The reality is, everything he says cannot be trusted, and if you follow his advice, you'll lose everything. If the serpent entices you, do not consent. Beloved, preparedness is never overrated. So third, Solomon prepares his son for real life with examples. Wisdom teaches you how to teach, and of all the hows we've learned so far, this is by far the most important. So fourth, what Solomon does in his wisdom lesson is that he explains why. Let me say that again. Fourth, and the most important part of how Solomon teaches, is that Solomon explains why. That is, he does not just say, don't do that. Rather, he explained to his son why doing that is a really bad idea by drawing out the ultimate consequences of a choice. Solomon explains why in two places, in verse 9 and in verses 16 to 19. In verse 9, Solomon explains why listening to his father will benefit his son. In verses 16 to 19, Solomon explains why not listening to his counsel will destroy him. In the latter case, he says that consenting to the enticement of sinners is a really, really bad idea because what you will lose is your own life. Hence, good teachers not only explain outcomes, they also explain why. Why it's true, why it's not true, why it does work, why it doesn't work, why this course of action is preferable to alternatives. When a teacher explains why, they are not teaching simpler matters like how, who, what, or when. Teaching those answers is limited in scope. Teaching why actually clarifies and informs the how, who, what, or when. Teaching why gifts its hearers with a deep, intimate understanding that can never be obtained if why is never communicated. Now granted, good teachers are only able to teach why if they have first asked why and learned the answer. And in fact, an important way someone gets a tight hold on any subject is to continually ask why. This requires a person to gather information, explicate the content of the data, and then search for conclusions. The revealed answer therein provides clarity and imputes meaning, purpose, and significance. Asking why is a crucial step towards true understanding of the cross, grace, redemption, the church, the self, and reality. Especially when it comes to expositing narratives in the Bible, the diligent student always begins with what God said and then asks, why did God say that? Why marks the beginning of thought and the impulse towards true knowledge, so it's no wonder that good teachers teach the answer to why. So forth, what Solomon does in his wisdom lesson is that he explains why. Now that we know how Solomon teaches Proverbs' first lesson, what does he specifically say? Well, his first lesson is a negative one. That is, he explains how not to fall for the enticement of sinners. He does this by arming his son with wisdom. Here is the second point. Point number two, wisdom works but you must hear. Here's what verses 8 and 9 say. Hear, my son, your father's instruction, and do not forsake your mother's teaching. Indeed, they are a graceful wreath to your head and ornaments around your neck. Verse 8 begins with, Hear, my son. This is a standard way for Proverbs to start an instruction speech. 
it evokes the modern situation in a home of a father sitting his son down and preparing him for reality by giving life instructions at the kitchen table. What Proverbs 1-7 told us is that wisdom is relational. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The same Lord of Wisdom has also created core relationships in life so that people can be taught divine wisdom by other people. One of the most important of said relationships is between parents and their children. The family has been the building block of civilization since the beginning of time for a reason. Because families love and care for one another, they are blood-related and spend the most amount of time with each other. The scripts that people tend to live are largely informed by what goes on in the home. Thus, if the son truly understands that wisdom is relational, if he now hears the instruction of a relative, then he identifies himself with the man of wisdom who hears and increases in learning. Proverbs chapter 1 verse 5. In the hierarchy of biblical authority, everyone sits under God's rule. Even the Son, Jesus, submitted himself to the will of the Father during his earthly ministry. Consequently, pastors and elders sit under Christ, and church members sit under church leadership. Parents sit under God's wisdom, and the children sit under the parents. The point is that in the kingdom of God, no one is autonomous, but lives in subjection to the Lord who is king. Thus, when you have godly parents teaching godly wisdom, all children ought to incline their ears and not be distracted by anything else. Wisdom works, but you must hear. Solomon teaching his son also reveals something very important. Ultimately, parents are the ones responsible for giving their child a biblical education. It's not your pastor, it's not your elder, it's not vacation Bible school, and it's not their Sunday school teacher. The Bible is crystal clear. No parent is called just to take their child to church and expect that they will get everything they need there. That is not the biblical model. The biblical model is that parents are the ones who are primarily responsible for teaching their children about the Bible, Christ, and the gospel. Hear what Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 to 6 says. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. These words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your sons and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. And hear what Ephesians chapter 6 verse 4 says. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. People tend to grow up thinking the way my family does things is normal because that's what they're used to. They therefore have an allegiance to the family's particular worldview. The beauty of this paradigm is that if a child is reared in a home saturated in divine wisdom, they will regard wisdom as normal and foolishness as alien. The child is therefore safeguarded when they leave the home. And just to be clear, what Proverbs 1 tells us is that what the son should listen to are his father's instruction and his mother's teaching. It takes a daddy and a mommy to make a baby. It also takes a daddy and a mommy to instruct their children in the way the world works. So parents, 
teach your children the word of God. This is your calling from God himself. Next, in verse 9, Solomon motivates his son to listen by explaining the benefits of hearing his parents' instruction. He says, they are a graceful wreath to your head and ornaments around your neck. Basically, a wreath and ornaments are symbols of prosperity, honor, and life. Additionally, they are a source of elegance, delight, and beauty that can be enjoyed by the one wearing them. They are visible and external, so everyone else can appreciate them. They also cannot be ignored. And what Solomon says is that the instruction itself are the adornments. Meaning, hearing the wisdom lesson does not get you something else in the future. Hearing the wisdom lesson is the wreath and ornaments that you get right now. So how do you live a life filled with prosperity and honor? That's simple by hearing divine instruction and not forsaking biblical teaching. Furthermore, I do not think it's too much of a stretch to point out that the wreath covers the head and the ornaments cover the chest. As a result, for the one who hears wisdom, they now have recovering over their mind and over their heart. This will prove to be handy when sinners begin enticing. The point is that the one who hears instruction acquires real benefits. This is important not to miss. Solomon does not motivate his son by saying, Obey my words or else. He does not coerce his son to do anything so that he obeys with fist clench and anger. Instead, he tells his son the reason why he ought to hear is that with the acquired benefits of instruction, life will be good. Life will be satisfying and enjoyable. He will get to now experience life with a wreath on his head and ornaments around his neck. As David Hubbard writes in the preacher's commentary on Proverbs, quote, Obedience makes a person delightfully outstanding to others and gives one something to cherish and value for oneself. End quote. In short, hearing wisdom means life will work out because you are now navigating life with God's directions. Wisdom works, but you must hear. Now that we know the value of wisdom, we can appreciate the worthlessness of foolishness. Consequently, verse 10 says, My son, if sinners entice you, do not consent. Solomon does not give abstract, otherworldly advice. He gives real, practical advice, and the practicality of this command is that it acknowledges that people are social and live life in groups. The teacher does not say that the devil, the man, or a person will entice. He warns his son about sinners, a social group of people united in their passion for sin. Thus, the alarm that Solomon rings here is that bad company truly does pose a very real threat to good morals. My son, if sinners entice you, do not consent. In fact, bad company is so dangerous, a warning against it appears here in the first lesson in Proverbs. One fool who sins is only capable of doing so much, but a bunch of fools forming a club are capable of far greater wickedness. That does not even mention the fact that groups tend to be far more persuasive than sole agents simply because people use social cues to guide behavior. Even malice, anger, and wrath can be made to look attractive if enough people are using them. Many people do things simply because everyone else is doing it. 
never stopping to consider why they are doing it or if what they are doing is actually right. So sin is never an individual matter. It is a social one. Just as the scripts we live tend to be informed by our primary social group, the family, the warning here is not to live a foolish script of sinfulness by giving in to the enticement of sinners. Who we are, what we do, and what we become is significantly determined by the company we keep. As a result, do not consent to the enticement of sinners. Do not put yourself in places or situations where the sinners have an opportunity to entice. Now let's take a closer look at the word entice. The Hebrew root of this verb can also refer to the opening up to new possibilities. This is how enticement works. There is only one path of wisdom, but enticement says, look at what else you can do. Look at your options. Consider there are alternatives to what God has said. The teacher also knows that before any man does anything, he must first consent to doing in his thoughts. Solomon therefore warns his son not to allow the sinner's enticement to birth a seed of sin in his son's mind. Do not consent therefore speaks not only to the mere decision to do something sinful, it speaks to the very beginnings of a foolish pattern of behavior that even considers alternatives to the wisdom of God. The point is this, sinners love company, so don't join the company. That company is already bankrupt and will soon disappoint everyone. Wisdom works, but you must hear. Next, in verses 11 to 14, Solomon prepares his son. He gets specific. He tells his son how sinners will entice him by providing examples of words they will use. We can divide these verses straight down the middle. The sinners first make a proposition to join them in verses 11 to 12, and then make arguments in favor of their proposition in verses 13 to 14. Those verses say, If they say, Come with us, let us lie in wait for blood, let us ambush the innocent without cause, let us swallow them alive like Sheol, even whole, as those who go down to the pit. We will find all kinds of precious wealth. We will fill our houses with spoil. Throw in your lot with us. We shall all have one purse. Now let us observe how morally bankrupt these sinners are. We know they are morally bankrupt on the inside because the plans that come out of them are morally bankrupt. Internal perversion expresses itself as corrupt speech. The sinners are murderers because they lie in wait for blood. They are cruel, merciless, and unjust because they know their victims are innocent, yet they ambush them without cause anyway. They are also greedy and selfish in that they are willing to destroy life just to gain precious wealth. In other words, they sacrifice life for stuff. And the height of their depravity is revealed when they heartily approve of others doing evil as well. That is, they invite recruits to join their schemes so that more can enjoy the profits of wickedness. This scheme represents the apex of foolishness because it all runs totally contrary to the wisdom of God. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, but these sinners live with a brash disregard of the Lord. This manifests as a brash disregard for the inherent value of human life. The bad news is that the one to whom the sinners will be accountable to is the one they despise, God himself. 
Verse 11 says, If they say, Come with us, let us lie in wait for blood, let us ambush the innocent without cause. What the text tells us is that the purpose of this ambush is personal enrichment. The sinners are doing evil, such as murder, theft, and oppression, just to get wealth. Not getting rich by exploiting others is a major theme in Proverbs, and what we will read over and over again are warnings not to get ahead by unjust means. And, by the way, the other big warning in Proverbs is not to be drawn into illicit sex by immoral women. Now, we have to embrace a brutal reality. One of the reasons why sinners entice men with immoral schemes is that at least in the short term, those evil schemes work and are therefore attractive. After all, that's why sinners execute these diabolical plans. A sinner can say, let's wait an ambush for the innocent because they've done it before and it's worked. Reality tells us that certain groups take wealth from others by force and as long as one group holds on to their power, they can bark, yell, shout, intimidate, oppress, or murder in order to get exactly what they want. And, at least in the short term, they may in fact gain all the precious wealth they desired and fill their houses with spoil. Now the thinking person may say, well wait a minute, we're now talking about sinners who do get away with it. In their case, wisdom does not work, evil works. So where's the value of wisdom in that? And my answer is, the wisdom of Proverbs is timeless and its value is eternal. So while the Proverbs are true in general here on earth, they will be absolutely true in eternity. So yes, there may be many who seemingly are getting away with it now, but they do not have forever. They only have right now, and sooner or later, they will run into the God of forever. They cannot escape from Christ, who is Lord over all. His proverbs always come true in eternity future, where all unjust gain will not stand. Now you may say to yourself, well, I'm glad I'm not one of those people. I'm glad I'm not one of those sinners who devise wicked schemes. Well, actually you are. So am I. Remember the challenge of reading Proverbs. It's learning and then knowing what wisdom is, but then acting foolishly anyway because we want to. This is why Christ is the perfect wisdom of Proverbs, the only one who embodies wisdom perfectly, the only one who perfectly knows and does. The point is that anyone can potentially behave like the sinners in verses 11 to 14. They can do this whenever they are enticed by accessible gain and then follow the path of foolishness instead of following God's wisdom. For example, many people in modernity are in love with wealth and will do many sinful things to get it, like crushing the innocent to take what little they have, like church leaders robbing widows of their retirement, like faking receipts on taxes so the government gives a bigger refund, like robbing God of his money by refusing to give an offering. Now don't get me wrong, I am in no way, shape, or form speaking out against wealth. Making profits or having wealth according to the Bible are neutral moral categories. What the wisdom of God is concerned with is how a man gains wealth. God warns us not to secure wealth by unjust means. And for those people who justly secure profit and amass wealth, that is not a sin. The wisdom of God then instructs them to use that wealth responsibly and in God-glorifying ways. 
as Bruce Waltke says in the New International Commentary on the Old Testament on Proverbs, quote, Sinners love wealth and use people. Saints love people and use wealth to help others, end quote. Let us all be mindful then never to view the world as a place to be conquered or other people as objects to be exploited. With a high view of God, we have a high view of those whom he made in his image, human beings. With a low view of God, there is a tendency to dehumanize people. The result is that all sorts of evil are permissible because others are not real people anyway and they merely have what I want. This is what James was alluding to in the New Testament. In chapter 4, verses 1-2 to two of his epistle, he writes, What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war on your members? You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. You are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. In other words, James tells us that unmet desires, molds and shapes, future quarrelers, fighters, enviers, and murderers. This is when the foolish sinner says, Come with us, let us lie in wait for blood, let us ambush the innocent without cause. Yet, we know that the purposes of sinners will not stand, only the purposes of God will remain forever. This leads me to my third and final point. Point number three. Foolishness not only fails, it takes everything away from you. Our final verses today are verses 15 to 19. That text says, My son, do not walk in the way with them. Keep your feet from their path, for their feet run to evil and they hasten to shed blood. Indeed, it is useless to spread the baited net in the sight of any bird, but they lie in wait for their own blood. They ambush their own lives. So are the ways of everyone who gains by violence. It takes away the life of its possessors. Here, Solomon gives his son the most important part of the instruction. He explains to him why he ought not to consent to the enticement of sinners. The reason is simple. For everyone who gains by violence, they end up losing their own life. While they may think they are gaining now, what they are actually doing is digging their own grave. Greed, unjust gain, violence, and oppression are simply not worth it. It does not make sense to gain a little something now, only to lose everything. Solomon begins by saying, My son, do not walk in the way with them. This verse has a double meaning, in that way means both a walkable road and a manner of life that leads to a destination. Hence, verse 15 essentially says, don't walk on the same road and don't follow their course of life. Verse 16 says, for their feet run to evil and they hasten to shed blood. This verse has the same first two lines as Isaiah 59.7 and is partially quoted in Romans 3.15. In Romans, Paul uses this text in his list of sinful traits that describe all of humanity. Such traits cause human beings to be subject to divine wrath. The point goes back to what I mentioned before, that people in general are capable of any crime. Next, what verse 17 to 18 tells us is that not only is what the wicked are doing is wrong, it's also stupid. The text says, Indeed, it is useless to spread the baited net in the sight of any bird, but they lie in wait for their own blood. They ambush their own lives. 
In ancient times, nets were used to catch animals and birds. But even the birds had the God-given sense to avoid a net because they knew it spelled certain doom. It was therefore pointless to throw a net toward any flying creature that was looking. So what's Solomon's point? That sinners are dumber than birds. Why? Because they're spreading a net over themselves, ambushing their own lives. And they're spreading that net while telling people about all the presupposed things they will gain. By implication, if stupid people do stupid things, if Solomon's son joins them in their folly, what does that make him? Do you want to be stupid? No one does. In order to be wise, then, we must not be blind to the reality that all deeds have consequences, and we must open our eyes to the consequences of all our deeds. This is what Solomon is teaching his son, that the fools are not thinking about where their actions will lead. They are not thinking about later, they are only thinking about right now. And because they are short-sighted, they are blind to the reality that they are ultimately damning themselves. A wise person, then, not only considers the value of a deed in the present, they also draw that deed out to all of its supposed consequences. When a man does that, he quickly realizes that God's wisdom always works and foolishness always fails. Hence, foolishness not only fails, it takes everything away from you. Another application that I would like to make in regards to verses 17 to 18 is that making a connection between deed and consequence also proves tremendously valuable when deciding between two good options. In the Christian life, steering away from the way of foolishness and choosing the path of wisdom may be readily simple because of the stark contrast. But when a Christian has two good options in front of them, which are both in line with God's truth, and both will be God-glorifying and Christ-exalting, making a choice may prove to be far more difficult. Consequently, in addition to searching the scriptures, prayer, and seeking the wise counsel of church leadership, another valuable strategy is to map out the consequences of either choice. In this way, you are trying to make a plausible connection between present deeds and future consequences. Truly, what will ultimately be in the future rests in the mind of God. But this does not mean we are inhibited from conceptualizing where we will end up later on if we take a step on a particular path. Going back to our verses, we now arrive at our final verse today, Proverbs 1.19. Here, Solomon provides the ultimate reason why his son should not consent to sinners. Verse 19 says, So are the ways of everyone who gains by violence. It takes away the life of its possessors. When the sinners began explaining their plan in verse 11, they made it clear that what motivated them is that their victims had something that they wanted, precious wealth. You can therefore label what animated the resultant lethal behavior with many names, like greed or covetousness. In life, there will be all sorts of paths and destructive behaviors prompted by greed, but unjust profit by violence cleaves to the unrighteous person and eventually destroys him. Jesus echoed similar sentiments in Matthew 26.52, where he said, For all those who take up the sword shall perish by the sword. And take note that violence does not just have to mean physical violence with a weapon. It could mean verbal violence, 
social violence, political violence, or economic violence, just to provide a few examples. Solomon therefore teaches his son a timeless principle, that in general, all evil deeds have negative consequences, and specifically, if you use violence against others, then your own violence will end up doing violence to your own life. As Galatians 6-7 says, Do not be deceived, God is not mocked, for whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. In giving his son his first wisdom lesson then, Solomon makes it clear that many promises in life are false promises based on a lie. How to spot a false promise is to compare it to God's truth. Anything that contradicts his divine wisdom will not and cannot work out in the end. And, in order to judge something, you can never determine its worth now. You must draw out the consequences of that deed into eternity. So why should Solomon's son not consent to the enticement of sinners? Because consenting is a horribly bad idea. If he consents, he is in essence consenting to his own death. How foolish is that? When we now take a step back and consider Proverbs 1, 8-19 overall, we, like Solomon's son, are compelled to stop and think. We are compelled to continually consider the deeper, future consequences of our behavior. And we do not consider based on our own intellect. We consider using God's wisdom. When we use His truth, what becomes exposed very quickly is the lie of foolishness. God's wisdom exposes that all the false promises of greed, covetousness, and unjust gain are not promises at all. They are weaponized lies that superficially offer a person something advantageous right now, but later on, they will take your life. The first false promise was a weaponized lie. Be like God and eat the fruit of the tree right now. What that false promise never said is that Adam and Eve would die later on. Not much has changed since the Garden of Eden. All lies can do nothing else but fail because God is the author of reality and He frustrates the greedy schemes of sinful gangs. As Psalm 33 verses 10 to 11 says, The Lord frustrates the plans of the people. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of His heart from generation to generation. Now, the careful reader may have noticed the absence of something in Proverbs chapter 1, verses 8 to 19. What they may have noticed is that God is never mentioned once. That in and of itself tells us something. For all the wicked who devise plots of unjust gain, they never consider the Lord at all. And that's the point. For so are the ways of everyone who gains by violence. It takes away the life of its possessors. Even if a man does not want to look at God, God sees him and violence falls back on his own head. Not to embrace that fact is foolishness, to live that fact is wisdom. Now while we've talked over and over again in this lesson about bad company, let us never forget that there never was a sinner so bad that Christ could not save him. At one point or another, each and every one of us were devising plots and sinful schemes for self-gain. We were doing that because we did not want Jesus as Lord of our life. We wanted to reign ourselves. Praise be to God that He sent His Son to die for the elect and that now, with new hearts and new minds, the faithful never trust in their own wisdom. They trust in the wisdom of God, Jesus Christ. 
The last and final thing I will say in this lesson makes a connection to the New Testament. I do not think this connection is forced, cognizant that as mentioned, Paul uses Proverbs 1.16 in Romans 3.15. So what did Judas do in the New Testament? In Matthew 26, 14 to 19, 26, 36 to 46, and 27, 1 to 10, we see that Judas did not embrace wisdom. Instead, he acted foolishly. He did not take the Father's advice and listen to sinners who had a plan for unjust gain. Judas was the one who was enticed and consented to an evil scheme. He laid an ambush to trap the innocent man, Jesus. Judas betrayed the Lord with a kiss and without cause. He was paid 30 pieces of silver for his evil deed, and Jesus was then handed over to the men who would lead him to his death. Later on, while Jesus died on the cross, Judas was very alive. It would seem, at least in the very short term, that Judas won. He secured precious wealth, and Jesus lost everything, including his life. But what happened three days later? Three days later, the innocent man was risen, and Judas was gone because he hung himself. Judas literally did the ultimate violence to his own life. So are the ways of everyone who gains by violence. It takes away the life of its possessors. Judas lost everything for a bag of currency. The wisdom of Proverbs was proven true in the life of Jesus Christ. As we look to the resurrected one, it is clear that God's wisdom triumphs. The ultimate reward for wisdom is far greater than the ill-gotten riches that shimmer, fade, and don't last. The ultimate wisdom lesson is to therefore trust in the resurrected Lord. While the immediate benefits of his wisdom may seem to tarry and delay from time to time, the fact that he is risen tells us that God's truth always ends in life. Foolishness always ends in death. If sinners entice you, do not consent, for they will lead you into the grave. Wait on the Lord and trust in Jesus Christ, and you will rise with him. Thank you for listening. For more valuable resources, including a bookstore and online Bible study, visit wcsk.org.